She's ready. She's ready. Here I mean, we are. We're ready. We're ready. We're alive. Welcome. We are alive. <laughs> as long as I've known you, you've been alive. How, <laughs> how is that going for you? That's good. Great. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Meet Your Species podcast. My name is Heath, and we have the lovely Andy today. Andy, I've known you... I don't know how has it been like eight years? Yeah. I feel like it's been quite or a many. Is it going on nine? Yeah, it's going on nine. Many a moon. Uh, and you've just been one of the consecutively. Uh, how do I describe it? You are consistently gracious, hilarious, and warm. And these are not terms that I give lightly. Because... Sponsored by Andy. Thank you so <laughs> much for <laughs> generous donation. No, but but seriously, because. I, I like. I distinctly remember one moment. It was a Christmas party, and you. <laughs> Why do I already know what it is? Because <laughs> <laughs> these were days when uh, I I was smoking pot. This was this was this was before the yoga, and uh, we we had an awesome like. This was one of the greatest moments of friend groups that I, I've had. It was like awesome. Not this moment, but like just that period was yes. really great. Oh, so much belonging. It was, it was just lovely. So, <laughs> uh, Andy gave me a, um, you gave me a Christmas card and I read it. And because the handwriting was so beautiful, I mean, it really was exquisite, but I just didn't read the name. I just somehow in, in my state at that moment assumed it was by our friend Chris Bagwell, who's a designer. And I don't know why. I was like, Chris, I love this card. He's like, I didn't write it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Andy, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's fine. No, no. But the way you responded, you were like, I'm so honored that you thought Chris wrote <laughs> Like it was, that's how you handled it. It I was think just... I, uh context chris went to a, a very lovely design school that i could not afford so to think i could belong in such phenomenal company wow that's just what a legend but yeah no, <laughs> these are, these are this, the names of people are making me miss these people mm. i'm like i started a text thread with this person and oh must have been Last year. <laughs> and by that, I mean probably like the last week of last year, which it is now two weeks since then. But man, uh, the the weeks sometimes feel very long. It's sad because that time period where we all felt that great sense of connection, it feels so short in my mind's eye because it was so fun. But it was really, if I probably tallied it, it was like a few years. It's like at least a couple huh. seasons of Friends. We had it. I mean, <laughs> The best seasons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The number, I think our characters on the whole were far better than, I, I I will pose that to the internet. Sorry, other white people, my <laughs> friends was better than your friends. Oh. Well, what to do? <laughs> I know. It was fine too. Smelly cat. I get it. I don't know. Is that in there? Well, you gotta understand Shravani uh, is still, like, when I met her, that was only five years ago, friends was still big in, in her mind, what? mind's eye. <laughs> Because in India, that's still a thing. And it's she asked still... me, she'll be like, you remember the one with Joey? And I'm like, no, because that was the 90s when I watched it. <laughs> I'll watch it to feel close. I never could watch it. It was in my funnel of, of not allowed to watches because of, of uh, people having relations, which oh. is weird because I could watch Seinfeld. But anyway, I think it was just one of those kinds of things. It was like, you know, watch what I want to watch, but <laughs> get that girl with good hair away from me. So <laughs> I have been wanting to watch it. For a very long time. It's actually been something that I felt like people connect using analogies from there. 
-hmm. And all I have is like the one where Jennifer Aniston kissed the recruiter. Like that's not good. That's the one (laughs) analogy you have. The one with the recruiter kiss. Like, is that what the name of the episode is? I don't know. (laughs) I know family matters too well where I'm just like, that episode where Steve benevolently gave his jacket to somebody on Christmas and Laura decided to give him a chance. That's not something anybody is ever like. Also, I made that up. So (laughs) it's a good reason why nobody relates. Half of it, I'm like, it must have been a Stefan episode. Did you watch Family Matters? I didn't. What? Oh, so I'm just babbling. It's fine. Did you watch The Fresh Prince? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't watch that either. You got all the shows. No, it was, there were swearing and there was an evolution poster in one of their rooms. Oh, that'll do it, I guess. Yeah. We'll give more context on why this is a problem for Andy. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, we'll kind of get into it a little bit. These podcasts, I I really like to give people the the context of like, why you are Andy, why you are the way you are. So take us into just like a, a snapshot, paint a picture, if you will, of, of your your upbringing, your childhood, like what that meant for you and why that made you the way you are. Well, I think I'm thinking uh, much more in my golden years that I, I don't, no one really knows the nature nurture balance, but I will say that I was um born extra i was born i came out just how i am in terms of personality i wish i could be like oh that really shaped me but i was always just like this so Mm -hmm. i um i'm the eldest of four so my next sibling came when i was like 20 months old so I kind of had to start changing diapers around that time, which is when you were pretty 20 tricky. Months. I think I did. My uh, my uh, parent was bragging about it recently, and I was like, um, "Mom, uh, surely you don't want to tell people that you had me changing diapers at three. <laughs> she's like, mm. "She's like, it was so cool. You could do it." I'm like, "Oh, was I in diapers? I don't know." But yeah, so doing a lot of diaper changing. We're really a we are part of a family that was fundamentalist Christian and we were homeschooled and we, how else would I say it? Uh, we were in upstate New York until I was about, I was 10 turning 11 and then we came to Georgia and I, it was a real culture shock. I entered public school. I was, uh, not a thin child, which it caused a lot of trouble for me over the years, mostly because my classmates, when I was homeschooled, I considered celebrities. I was like, oh, these people on entertainment tonight, my classmates, <laughs> and just uh, felt close to them. But it was always like, oh, when is my stylist coming in? Like, I just kind of lived like that. So then <laughs> when you get into public school, people really let you know, like, I flat ironed my hair this morning and uh, my dad has me in cheerleading. It's just like, okay, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Good dance moves, whatever. So no, I didn't I ended up being a fine arts dweeb and really thriving in that scenario, uh, but uh, really struggling in public school, not academically, did pretty well, but was not liked. And uh, went to college, stopped being religious, uh, what else happened? Oh, I lost a hundred pounds at the end of high school, 
which was revelatory, not not always in the way that I would like it to be. And then what what else has happened? I think that's upbringing. That's upbringing, yeah. And then I'm a person in college <laughs> that is not faithful, so that's tricky. <laughs> An unfaithful college student. So what, like, for somebody who was never like homeschooled, for example, yeah. that was, that's an experience, right? Oh yeah. What, what is that like? Because I think a lot of people have preconceptions, and mm-hmm. I want to know what, what's your take on it. So homeschooling is like quarantine America. You go to sleep, and you wake up, and you do the same thing that you do every day. And you have a much higher threshold for slacking off. Like uh, our our work was, my mom would be like, well, I'm going to finish lunch. Go do two pages of your workbook. So I would go do my math workbook. A, a lot of it was a lot of self-starting. So, oh, interesting. Mm. Okay. So, uh, sorry, guys. We had a visitor at the door. But... I wish it was a guest, like on um, Pee Wee or Mr. Rogers. Would have been good. It's Chris <laughs> Bagwell with his handwriting. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, where were we? We were talking about homeschooling and what yes. the experience is like. Okay. Um, what we did have uh, really bad field trips to like the grocery store. I'd be like, we're gonna learn about consumer shopping <laughs> at the grocery store. But do they have anything like I, I know some homeschool groups do like sports and things like this some some oh, sort of grouping yeah. with other kids. Once every two weeks on Friday we would go to a church and it was called group lessons, group lessons, where they tried to socialize you with the other strange children that were <laughs> also homeschooled. So you've got a lot of like children named Eleanor with like hair down to the backs of their thighs. And like, uh, what, what else would I say? Uh, we were religiously homeschooled, so we had a lot of other religious homeschoolers. Mm. So it was uh, interesting. We learned about, we did crafts. I didn't learn to sew. It was offered, but I, uh, I as a person, I would say that I'm a creature of leisure. If it's for some, If it's something for someone, I'll put a lot of effort into it. But if it's just something to do, why am I doing it? So I would uh, embarrass people with my cross stitch, whatever people do. I don't know. What else did we do there? Uh, patriotic shows, shows about patriotism. So like you what? Would, How's that go? Uh, you sing a lot of like, you're a grand old flag. Oh. We don't accept you if you're not straight. Like a lot of like <laughs> really weird, bad, <laughs> upsetting it wasn't, you know, then you don't know it's bad. You're just like, why am I riding a covered wagon across this <laughs> rented pulpit at this random sanctuary? But yeah. Um, Good times. That, uh, it was times. I didn't hate it. Uh, yeah, and a lot of nativity plays. So <laughs> got to let your freak flag fly at the nativity play. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that was about it. I'm sure that like the only sports were like aggressively playing on the on the uh, playground, and I'm I'm physically weak for a person, so like a lot of athletic activity really passed me by. The most athletic thing that happened was we were playing with seat belts, which is a dumb game, but we were just letting understand. them go <laughs> just so to, to hear the noise. <laughs> that is what homeschoolers are like. 
and uh, <laughs> I got smashed in the face with a seatbelt, and I ended up bleeding down my face like a car accident happened. And that was the most uh, eventful thing that ever happened at group lessons. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. A lot of the time, really, all we did was watch PBS Kids, which was nice because as a child, I probably averaged about 15 hours of TV watching a day. So it was a... Oh, that's significant. It's significant. And then you would just go to your Bob Jones textbook. That was the person who made them out of Alabama. And we didn't have science. And None? No. Zero. Oh. How's that work? Just things about Jesus and his love. But there's like some sort of no. standards, right? For we, You have to go take the Iowa test. And I did fine on the Iowa test. And it was really basic stuff that I saw on PBS Kids. It was like, oh, Jupiter, my. Like, it was like real basic uh, Miss Frizzle type stuff. And I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I watched the show and I retained it and then I had to entertain my siblings with the show so obviously I had to lord that information over them you don't know the order of the planets <laughs> what's the nomenclature for a sloth like things like <laughs> the, the things like that were turns out in real life you really don't use uh the varieties of Australian mammals <laughs> Not so, so much. I would know things like that Okay. So yeah, yeah, that's that is what it was like. It's, mm. it's I guess it's hard to it's hard to explain. You just do a couple pages. Your mom would read with you for like half an hour and just hope the test turned out all right. But it did. It was weird. Huh. <laughs> Not to be a libertarian over here, but like it was it was okay. So what would you find are the biggest um differences or maybe more in like a pro con of homeschool mm. versus when you shift it over to public school. I don't like public school at all, so that's easy. Oh, okay. The, <laughs> the, the pro, I'll start with public school because it has less pros for me. Mm -hmm. Pros were uh, socializing with diverse peers. It's very useful. My best friend in seventh grade, Ashma, was Muslim and like you could just meet people that you would never meet while they were beating you with the Bible sword or whatever they were doing on the playground at group lessons. Uh, the the teachers <laughs> had <sorry>. different... <laughs> that, that happened. I think it was at his house, though. Anyway, um, so... Shout out, kid. I don't remember your name. <laughs> I hope you grew up to not be doing what I think you were on January 8th. Um, anywho, anywhoozle. Uh, yeah, the teachers... Uh, uh, they didn't care about me, but they were more um, different skill sets, you know. The best thing in public school, 100%, was the extracurricular activities. To be able to do theater was just saved my life. So I have to say that that was very valuable. It could also be competitive. It could also be sad. But it was, it gave me a place to belong and a place to be strange. And homeschooling is just like you can't even be in it if you're not strange you know you're already choosing something so divergent from the herd so then i would say the pros to homeschooling is that you learn at your own pace you can learn more if you want and as a person who always wanted to learn more even if it was just about the pink ranger's life like i, I always wanted I had a, that thirst for knowledge and i also liked that you got to be a, a kid when you were homeschooled. So the things you were interested in or 
uh, playing outside with your friends. It was never like a, let me wait for this. Let me, the, the rigor of orders and, uh, the, the amount of discipline to survive the day, you never felt that. Like I never had a, I would, I would stutter. I would long for my friends to come home from school so I could play with them. But I never had a day where I was like, what am I, what am I doing? <laughs> and I will say in public school, you have so many of those moments where you're just watching the clock or just trying to figure how you're going to make the next hour of time pass. Reminds mm -hmm. me a lot more of like a penitentiary kind of uh, philosophy for children. Yeah, it's not uh, making, making children, uh, socializing them to be asocial for the interest of doing busy work. It might tie directly into employment expectations outside of school, but I don't think it's healthy for anyone. So for, for humans. Yeah, for humans. Fair enough. Sorry, species, if that's what you like. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so as far as um, those like schooling years, mm -hmm. what? because you showed me a video a little while back where this girl's interviewing just strangers on the street and asking questions. And so I oh, decided yeah, to incorporate this a little bit. So Great. I'm going to test it on you. Love it. Um, what would you say would be some of the biggest challenges? You, you were just one or like, what are the challenges you really faced that you had to overcome? In school specifically? It doesn't have to be in school, but in those years, like maybe 18 oh, or younger. Oh, in the school years. Sorry, mm. uh, technical issue. Anyways, um, the question is, what are the challenges you faced in your like, younger years like the the things that you had to overcome the kind of i don't know i'll say homeschooling years it was just the the pining to be like everyone else to know what everyone else felt like because things like riding the school bus oh my gosh we wanted to ride the school bus we thought about it all the time kids would be out there you know in the the five feet of snow and i should have just felt bad for them, but instead I was like, oh, but they get to ride the bus. That's ridiculous. Because uh, you're in New York, right? Yeah. So you guys got Western snow. Western New York, like Great Lakes, super snow. Yeah, we had a lot of snow. We had seven feet of snow on the side of the house in 1993. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I had time to measure it. I was homeschooled. <laughs> uh, what were the hardest things? Mm. Yeah, that would probably be it. The hardest things in public school... It doesn't have to be about school. It can just be like generally in life. Just in life? I would say in life, the hardest thing in public school would be that it was during adolescence. And so where I would have been developing and like branching out in a social circle... I was really an outsider. And more than that, I started seeing signs for depression and for, for mental health issues. So uh, it was probably just, a, well, specifically during my later school years, it was being fat. I mean, being fat was just destroyed me. And it wasn't probably the... I could do a lot of things. I was like Chris Farley when he got on ice skates. I was 
very capable. I was talented. I was above average in many different ways. I remember in seventh grade, I still had my homeschooling confidence. Mm-hmm. I, Your homeschooling confidence. I, did, I needed it. I drew the cover of the literary magazine. I contributed to it. I started in the school play and had straight A's and got put into the gifted program. I thought I was walking on sunshine. I was like, how could life get better? Here I am ready to give what I've got to the world. I knew I was a star. And then the next year rolled around and just... Uh, people, people would fake ask me out. And when I got into high school, I couldn't get roles in high school because of my appearance. They would want me to use my accent to train the person who was physically acceptable. That was terrible. And so, yeah, that was, that was really, really lonely. And then too, a lot of things that come with depression, like a lack of self care and, uh, Things of that nature were showing up. I was getting blamed for it. Like there was this fund for underprivileged kids that was that would go around and people would raise money for the Holiday Hope Fund. And the school called me because they were like, we noticed that she looks really run down and her clothing is poor. So would you all need some help this season? And my parents were offended, but I didn't want to ask. I never wanted to draw attention to myself. And at the same time, my parents, because of the external influences, started seeing me as secular. I was banned to live in the basement of my parents' house. I wasn't allowed to interact with my family. So a lot of those things were very hard. And then, so I would say then after that, some of the difficult things were after I lost weight. My, my body didn't look like a teenager's because when you lose a great deal of weight, you have a great deal of loose skin. And then my boyfriend was gay and I didn't know. So I just felt like, here I am. I lost a hundred pounds, but I am unlovable to my boyfriend. And, uh, the conflicts with my family escalated. So it was just, it was a tricky time. I would not, Anytime people are like, oh, but those high school years are right. I'm always like, what? (laughs) Why? They're like, oh, if I could go back and throw one more pigskin. I'm like, I wish you could right now. Go back. (laughs) So, yeah, that was sad. It was uh, it was sad even when it was better because as I lost weight, people would make eye contact with me. They would talk to me. They were friendly with me. Uh, they wanted to be my friend. All of a sudden people started, um, I wouldn't call it intruding because I welcome people. I love connecting with people, but there was so much of a demand on my time by other people where all my years before had been so lonely. Hmm. It was just really, it was really jarring. And then at that point, the only person I felt close to was said boyfriend because I felt uh, a great deal of trust in that person. So on a positive note, I still have both of my best, I still have my best lady friend from high school and that old boyfriend. I just, just texting him today. He's still my best friend. So it's worth it in the long run. The trauma bonding is worth it. It was just <laughs> very hard. And also there were other dynamics. Uh, my said high school sweetheart 
is black, so we were told by the theater person when we both got the lead roles in theater, we couldn't do the kiss that was in the play because they didn't want to start something. In 2003, apparently, uh, an Too interracial soon. kiss was just... Too soon. So I was like, wow, he's Sidney Portier. I was like, wow, okay. And I was banking on that, you know? He was he was holding out on me, so I was like, I need this kiss, please, please. <laughs> Not to mention the outrage of racial injustice. It was also personally, I mean, I guess racial injustice is personally uh, jarring and it was uh, damning, but it was also hard as somebody who's just like, this is going to be my first kiss. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was not the simplest time. Mm. But I think it was so, such an important time i think it was really eye-opening because through things like i'm not a person i'm not fat phobic but i think through weight loss i saw the the notion that when you put set your heart on everything being okay when something else comes down the line mm -hmm. that's not true like you have to live in the current moment constantly and these achievements it's a, always a be careful what you wish for. Sorry, microphone. But yeah, it's always a be careful what you wish for. Because the same thing with um, possessions. Some people are like, oh, when I hit it rich, when you hit it rich, you will be you with more money and different problems. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that some problems won't get better. Like for me, I could wear clothes that I could buy at a store <laughs> and my my mobility was a lot uh, simpler. But yeah, in terms of emotionally, where I was just like, I'm going to fall in love and then I'm going to star in the Moulin Rouge. Like, none of it. Because <laughs> I had realistic expectations then too. <laughs> so what, um, what would you say is your... Um, do you have any like moments you're really proud of? That you would, From like, that same time period or yeah. just in life? Oh, well, I mean, you can period. actually, let's, let's just open up to, to life up until now. What are your most proud moments? Oh, wow. I guess my proudest moments at this point are being with my grandparents in Germany, where they were originally from. I, my grandfather needed someone to push his wheelchair and it was the last year he would be alive and I got to see that with him that was special seeing my sister so my parents did not want me to be close to my family I was like uh, disowned hmm. but my sister had a baby this year and I have seen this baby every week of her life as she's grown and the baby looks like she did when I was a little girl so it's like reliving being three years old but better because you know what's going on and so that's Proud would the proud part of that, I guess, would be just that getting to be close to someone during all stages of their life. Like, I don't know, I guess some parents must feel that when they're like, oh, my baby is, but I feel that with my siblings. And then what else was the proud moment? Hmm. What about a, a moment, or, or uh, doesn't to be just one moment, but. Uh, an event or a situation or something which really triggered growth in you? Oh, let's see. I think, um, I know this is going to sound unkind, but 
breaking up with someone really triggered gross in me. How's that? Uh, I would say the best thing I ever did was leave my fiance when I was young because I... You might have to get some context. What's this? Let me, yeah. <laughs> let me, let's bring everybody up to date. Gay boyfriend in college. I was on my own. Uh, I was 17 when I started college and I didn't have any money. So I was like dumpster diving and things. I just had my housing paid for with my student loan. And a couple years in, I met some guy. He had a crush on a girl I was in theater with. It was then. <laughs> not today, I don't send people, but kind of difficult when that's not it's not your mo i had regained a little bit of weight and but she was thin like she never had that problem at all but also she was really regular thin i don't mean this in a bad way i mean this in a like a when one has a lot of personality it is always interesting when somebody is telling someone about some i don't know everyone has different goals but when you meet someone and you're like, oh, your life has been kind of just coasting. <laughs> okay. It's weird when somebody is obsessed with their connection with somebody who's just like, I, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know where the connection could have formed. You know, you're like, oh, mm -hmm. you saw this person and you liked them. And now you're obsessed with marrying them. But why do you, why? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So... There wasn't a lot of explanation. Point of that being, he was he was trying to uh, get with this girl, and in the process, he took a liking to me as a consolation. And I was with that person for three years. It was the first person who ever showed interest in me. Oh. And to get out of that relationship, my parents told me the reason I went to college was to find my husband. And that was him. Like they told you that before college or like at this point? Oh, at this point. after, oh. And they knew that it was a tumultuous relationship and there were a lot of very difficult things going on inside of the relationship. But they told me that, of course, the whole reason that I would go to school was to find him, find my husband, mm. not to get a degree about in something that I was very, very uh, invested in and that I loved and that I excelled in. It wasn't to see all of the different things. It was just for that. So for me to say, oh, because that was another thing. From the time you're born, when you're in that fundamentalist kind of environment, your life is about creating the next family. Like mm -hmm. you are all about almost to the point where it's like you're born into codependence. It's like find a spouse and populate the earth for Jesus. That is it. That's your That's MO. Your purpose. <laughs> That's your purpose. And for me to, I've, I was the first person in my family to break up with they're the first person that they were in a serious relationship with. So mm -hmm. the generation ahead of me, they all married them, went along, uh, went their merry way. So, yeah, that is that's a weird thing to say. But I was about to have surgery to remove the skin from my struggles as a kid. And he was very attached to the idea of me as like a trophy wife. And I decided... I didn't want to be with him anymore. And so I, and after having a lot of conversations, I decided to strike out on my own and figure out whatever the cost it was, however many jobs I had to work, I was going to be my own human. And mm. then that happened. And I know that sounds sort of bittersweet because I 
don't mean it as a as a sad moment for that person, but for me, it just meant that I would get to enjoy my own company, which is not something I anticipated ever enjoying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, the way you're describing this, it's reminded me. There's like a, I think it's a, a TED talk, where someone who's a lesbian speaks about her experience coming out of the closet, and how actually lots of people are in lots of closets, whether it's sexual or not, and so. I'm curious how you would describe this situation of, um, well, first maybe give a little bit more context on what it means to be in a, to grow up in like a fundamentalist kind of mm-hmm. family and then what it's like to actually come out of that. And, Cause you're kind of on your own when you're doing this, right? Oh yeah. So you don't have anybody. Yeah. So, um, coming out of the fundamentalist closet. Well, first of all, <laughs> well, first of all, I would have I wish I could have put that on the list, but like the apostasy was really really painful. What is that? Apostasy is when you you come out of religion. I went to school mm-hmm. wanting to be a minister. Oh. I wanted to get a physical therapy degree and I wanted to be a minister. I wanted to get people to think and invest in the poor and the the underserved. And so my goal when I went into college was I'm going to spend all the time in the library I need. My parents don't want me fine. I have God. I'm going to invest in uh, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt there's a God. And that just opened the door to more questions, which opened the door to skepticism, which, I mean, I had post-traumatic stress over it. I was so, oh, it was horrible. I was wanting to walk on train tracks. I was in bed for three weeks and I would wake up, I would have the, the, uh, violent nightmares. And I was, I was, when I said that was my first true, cause I had been depressed for a long time, but it was a mild depression. That was a by far my first major depression hits a ceiling. Like we were like, there's no further we can go. You have nothing moving up here, sister. You want to die. So it was the first time I was like, Oh my, I was, I would sit there. I was like, I know, I know it's weird to pray, but if a plane could crash into this building and kill me, I'd love it. If a car could accidentally hit me and I die quickly, Awesome. (laughs) So that was really, really bad. And then when I uh, came out of the closet, it was um, horrible. It was terrible. It was, uh, I was met with full consternation, uh, pulled by my hair and dropped outside of the house. Would, uh, it was, it was, um, it was nasty, which is another reason I was really clingy to that relationship because I thought, if I'm out of this relationship as uh, sorted as it is, I am back in that. Like I have nowhere to go. So yeah, it was, um, I'm so thankful for what I have. The gifts uh, of leaving have been a much bigger heart than I started with in the first place. I thought it was as big as it could get, but I, I was still shaped by the expectations of the world and the world is so much bigger and the world is beautiful now because it's not all scary stuff that can land you in hell. It's just beautiful. (laughs) So that is a gift, but I would, I don't often talk about coming out of religion because I, I don't recommend it. I mean, it's so, it was just so horrifying and Mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was, not the only saddest time of my life, but it was by far one of the bleakest times. 
And I was, I was also, I was working at the time. I had a $6 an hour, it might've been less, internship. And I showed up just looking like, like I looked shell-shocked. Like I was completely losing myself. And the people in the offices at school was just like, I could never show up anywhere looking like that. And we're just disgusted by me as if my my failing mental health were me. So that was really, it wasn't a good time. I'm glad mm. that it's over. But it, it also, it gave me some really great friends because the people who have to live at the fringes really need each other. So in terms of best friends, I got some of the absolute best friends out of the situation. And I had to break uh, the the previous friendships, as I mentioned, we still love each I spoke to both my high school best friends today over text, but I had to cut the cords for a while. Mm. And that really, that was really important. So mm. yeah, um, that, that closet. And I think that people need to, I, I hope that this is something that makes people think about what it takes to come out of the closet in general too, because I know that a lot of times People like to celebrate it as like a nice past memento, but the process of can just be so crushing for mm. people. Not that people should bring children into this world with expectation, but I almost think it happens whether or not people consciously do it. So, yeah. Mm. That's all. That's all. <laughs> Heath, do you want to answer any questions? Do you want to tell me that answer for you? What closet do you think you've had to walk out of? Oh, well, I guess for me, my childhood was a lot of uh, being alone. So there was really nothing that people were forcing me into, like even with religion. I chose to join the Catholic Church when I was six because I was bored and they had a candle and I wanted to burn that candle. <laughs> you only got to burn it once a year, but I really wanted to burn that candle. I still never got to burn it, but I had to go through six years of church school. <laughs> so, And I mean, even with that, they had me continue going to church school for six years because to try and instill that sense of like, once you commit to something, at least see it through. So yeah. I did it all through the what's called confirmation. Yeah, I was going to say, did you get confirmed? Yeah. I did. It's actually the only one in the family who did, even though my sister's <laughs> Can you still take the body of Christ if you wanted to at Mass? I'm so jealous. I don't know if there's like papers that prove whether you can or not. I guess if I just go up, they'll give it. I don't know how but it you works. were confirmed. I'm not allowed. My family's Catholic, so I'm very interested in that. the The oh. non-fundamentalist family, the extended family, everyone's Catholic. So jealous. I was like... Uh, like, never, like, don't let her have it. I was like, ah! I wanna, they don't taste good. They're I really know, awful. I know, but it's like a participation thing. You know, you're like, I want my nasty foam. Uh, well, like for me, uh, I really, how do I put it? Once I realized that this wasn't for me, which was almost immediately, I didn't really... I, I, I had, they said, I had, when I say they, I mean like uh, teachers and um, I went to a psychiatrist and they said I had ADHD and all this as a kid. Mm -hmm. as a kid. So I was like at the church, I would 
we would have to go up in like the top balcony pews because I would be sliding around back and forth. I would play a game with my friend who was deaf and like, I don't know why, how that worked for him, but we would take the Bible out of the little pew thing and fold one page and stick it back. And he had to try and find that page and go back and forth. Like, like all these things, my mom would be so frustrated because she'd be like, what were they talking about? And I'd be able to say like the gist of what the sermon was about because I was just able to pay attention and do all the other things. Yeah. But, um, you needed when, the other things to pay attention. <laughs> I guess I, I, what I realized later is it's not that I had a deficit of attention. It's that I just didn't give a shit about whatever most people were talking about. <laughs> so like, I, I, I actually have an incredibly uh, high ability to focus in on something very specifically because it's something I want to pay attention to and a very high threshold for how much of what you want me to do. I, I'm you have to really push hard before I'm going to actually participate in it if I just don't want to do yeah. it. So that translated to me being about 14 and we're in this small town, everybody knows each other town, little <laughs> chocolate shop before Easter. And there's uh, a chocolate thing of hands like this. And very loudly, this place is packed. It's Easter. Everyone's getting their chocolate. And I'm just like, who wants clapping hands? Like, why? <laughs> I just, and this cop was staying there to like keep the peace, I guess. He just looks over and says, and my mom's like, six years of church school. <laughs> Praying hands. I'm like, okay, but I don't want to eat hands. Like, why? It's so weird. Well, you were trying to eat the body of Christ. So you really, <laughs> just the hands. Just the hands now. Is <laughs> it the healing hands? I don't know. But, um, so as far as like closets to come out of, I, I, I think... I didn't have like a, a belief system so much to come out of because I never really had anyone try and force me to believe anything. Mm. What I did have to come out of that was actually more challenging, not more challenging than that, but just the more challenging thing for me was uh, just realizing that because like my best friend was deaf, so there was a certain level of... Um, Many beautiful things I learned from him that I couldn't get from other people, like his ability to pay attention to things visually and just because he had to, he couldn't hear. Um, and he was more athletic in me, so it really pushed me to be a, a lot of things. But yeah. um, at a young age, when I met him in third grade, he was just behind comprehension-wise in certain aspects, like reading level and stuff. Yeah. Because they didn't even acknowledge that he was deaf until a certain grade because they, they just, it's hard to test, you know? Wow, yeah. Uh, although I guess... How would yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I, I wasn't. Did there. you sign Heath? No, because I met him in third grade, and by fourth grade, he got something called a cochlear implant. Yeah, I know what that is. So he was actually able to hear probably better than me at that point after they got it all dialed in. So there was really no need. I learned a few things, like this was pain. So yeah. he'd be like a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't at a point where I was like signing Having or anything. To do I, anything. I just remember like this is J and I think this is K. We had to sign in church. Little... This is Lord. Oh. <laughs> nice. Jesus is the holes in his hands. What? Yeah, That's... how more? See, more with okay. the hands, more the hands. But <laughs> I would say at least like chocolate Jesus hands acknowledges that he was like from Nazareth and not like <laughs> he was brown. He was brown. It wasn't white chocolate. <laughs> it's not white chocolate. But like that's not that's not enough, especially yeah. since uh, sugar is ethically troublesome. <laughs> it's just so many it's fine. Yeah, let's go into the Catholic Church for all the chocolate. Let's not. Let's not get into the chocolate or sugar problems. <laughs> no. Um, no, but so to answer the question, uh, for me, the difficult thing was like, he was, there's a certain distance because of 
um, the comprehension levels. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I was like understanding more than him. It was just different. Like we weren't able to connect at certain levels because of that. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, my mother growing up had a, an accident that created this, um, it's called RSD. It, it basically means that the nerve cluster uh, in like her left side was irritated in a way that triggered pain when there wasn't anything going on. So like a sleeve, she had to cut the sleeves off of all of her arm, uh, shirts and stuff because if the sleeve was on there, it would feel like searing daggers going on. Oh. The wind, raindrops, like is anything. Is that neuropathic pain? Is that, this, is that also referred to that? Because I have a I'm friend sure. who has that also where it's just like, the explanation is just the nerve endings. Just all, all I, I don't really know so much about it. Probably I should know more, but for me, the, kid. the experience translated to, uh, mom was on very heavy pain medication out of necessity mm. because most people, uh, I think a majority of them commit suicide that have this disorder. It's that painful. Yeah. Some people are like neck down, like severe. So I can't imagine being in that kind of pain all the time. But yeah. anyway, I remember being small and seeing her on the couch and be like, okay, I'm pretty sure I was like some small degree of dyslexic at that time. Cause I had to like think, which is the left side? I have to sit on that side, like the opposite side. So I don't bump her arm and make her cry. <laughs> like these are the kind of things I was going in. So, um, while they were able to really focus in on things and I really think that in some way I was a degree of dyslexic and got myself out of that by like learning how to really focus. Um, but she was on the heavy pain medication. So there were just some aspects where for a 14 year span, because of that pain medication, you're not fully there. Yeah. She's an amazing woman who did a lot, but still you're on pain medication. Yeah. And then uh, other aspects, like my parents split up when I was three, so my dad was physically distant. So there's a lot of distance. Yeah. So for me, the most difficult thing was learning how to actually be um, fully connected with people because I always had a certain distance. Like that thing you said when someone like fake... Um, Asked me out? Yeah. yeah. I think I did that not on purpose, not because I was trying to be rude to somebody, but because I didn't understand what the concept of being in a relationship was. Like, I, there weren't any of those around Cues. me all the time. Yeah. I didn't have that sort of social uh, understanding. Yeah. So I, I think for me that that's the the stepping out, like realizing like, okay, it's fine that, you know, whatever happened in childhood, but now you know it's a thing, so you need to not do that because that's kind of shitty to yeah. <laughs> This person thinks you're on a date right now. Yeah. You're like, well, like, we're just hanging out. <laughs> no, not even that. Like, I, I just, I didn't know how to be close. Yeah. Like one person described it, um, who I was in a relationship with much later. And she said, it's like your heart is not really open. You're but like, I'm able to be very good with strangers and connect to them. But a deeper relationship, not many people in my uh, younger years had uh, show me what that was like. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know how to do that for other people. I didn't mm -hmm. really know that was a thing. And I just thought being alone was normal, <laughs> but it's a consequence. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's, it's easy to think, uh, my sister would hate me bringing this up, but my baby sister that reminds me a lot of, I, I used to tease her. I'd be like my little ice bitch, but my, my, <laughs> little, my, 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 my youngest sister was born when I was five 
And when she was a year old, my mother was taken into an asylum for being bipolar. Hmm. And as a result, I have this personality. It's a lot. And it's all, it's all this engagement. Like, just all, oh, like, if you don't engage, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it for you, baby. I'm here. Got it. But uh, my, my sister was one. So she, as a person, is a lot of the things you're describing. Because my mom started being medicated after that. Hmm. And... In medication, there was some level of distance and also probably dealing with the stigma. Certainly, it's not like have some uh, one in particular. Well, some, but the person I'm thinking of has the pains that are not the same thing that your mom had, but has pains such that, you know, it's they can't interact anymore or even just like proximity can so I know that there are sometimes relationships where like there's physical distance and emotional distance, mm -hmm. but for my mom, it was like, uh, she kind of just became, uh, I don't want to say a robot. Cause I also, uh, enjoy a mood stabilizer, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but something was different. So she was, uh, with us when we were younger, she was just, wildly creative and engaged in a way that like my youngest sister has sort of the, she can be very disciplined. She can be very focused uh, different from the rest of us, but she also struggles with distance because mm. even, even the people she loves, she wants to do something to show them she loves them. But it's like you said, like with, with the heart, she, she's has no trouble with, engaging strangers or being friendly in business. But when it comes to being really open and vulnerable, I think she really struggles. Mm. That's, and that's hard. It's hard that you went through that because too, it's something that sometimes our culture kind of idealizes. It's like, Oh, of course you're a one man Island. You don't need anyone. You make your own decisions. You are a true individual. And it's like self-made. Yeah. <laughs> like, Oh, well, I would actually really like to feel closeness with others <laughs> and belong. We're social animals. <laughs> so it's funny. My That sister and I actually get along. We were great. And part of it is because I have been forced from the family in different places. She never has to be because she's always a distant star. That's mm. just how she is. The trauma and annoyance don't touch her. She can live with anyone. She can do anything. She's just, she's just there. She's her. So it doesn't affect her internally. We're like, I don't even have skin. I'm just like walking <laughs> around like, oh, you love me? I love you. Oh, it was nice to meet you, person who gave me my change. Like, we're like oh, my God. <laughs> You just gave me that change so good. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that's that's interesting in those like foundational relationships. Mm. How that too and it's nice it's nice to hear that perspective because the grass always seems greener. You're like, well, you're self-contained. <laughs> you can make choices without feeling feelings for everyone in the room. That's, <laughs> but it's not, it's not always because it's, it, it gets lonely all on your insides, you know? Again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about, um, your 
favorite moments? It could be like mm. things with family or things since you've become a, an adult. <laughs> My adult. <laughs> Grown up. Uh, favorite moments. I'll probably say... I, my first adult best friend who is still, we're, we're so close, uh, just being in the car with someone that you feel fully accepted by and just sitting in the passenger seat and everything's sucking, but you both hurting kind of like a, it's like a beautiful orchestra piece where like you're hurting with cello and, and she's, she's bringing the brass and like together, it's just kind of like a symphony, uh, even though it's horrible like you can go through really incredibly uncomfortable things with people that you love and then i would say probably later on i, I keep noticing and i'm just aware of this i one of the greatest things in my life certainly is like my my little family my love my relationship with my husband that's been such a piece it's like a lot of the things the, the pathways were dug before we finally got to each other. So when we did, it was just so simple. Mm. But a lot of the connecting, really connecting with people has always been, I guess, it's as as many of those marvelous connection moments. And then making people laugh, that would probably be my other favorite thing. Just if I can remember, okay, I'll do my, my grandmother grew up in Nazi Germany. She gave flowers to Hitler when she was five, which isn't giving flowers to Hitler. It's throwing flowers at a politician when you're five. You don't know what you're doing. But <laughs> she is four foot, she's four foot nine. She's very stern. And she is the light of my life. She is just, she's my... She's my hero. Like she is the most dedicated, industrious, like caring. I don't know. I don't have enough good words for her, but she's very traditional. Mm -hmm. So one day I realized that between like she who's like just very like, Andrea, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You shouldn't have gone to school for film. You should go for finance. What's wrong with you? Between her and my mom who's like, if Luna Lovegood grew up and bad things happened to her, just like, hey, how are you, baby? Great. Like, she is 100% just, like, she seems like a fried-out hippie, but she never was. She was, she was. she was in the 80s. Like, she was not. So she wasn't, she didn't have her time. She's, I love my mother, but... The day that I realized that I could make both of them really laugh, I was like, I'm great. <laughs> like, I don't have to do anything else. <laughs> like, my life is great. I can crack up a stern, intense, traditional woman, and I can make my mother, who farmed her whole life. She's like 87 and still farming. I'm like, please learn to relax. Or my mother, who I don't know when the last time, like her, her doing domestic labor takes all of her everything. She's like, oh, I washed the dishes today. I'm like. <laughs> you did it. So. I woke up at 2.30 and made myself a snack. But the fact that I can make both of those so, so vital to my existence, people, but so, I mean, they're, they're, that's her daughter, but they're very opposite that I could get both of them to laugh. That's probably my happiest moment. 
why do you think humor became sick? Because I've noticed this from the time I met you, like your <laughs> ability to say the most awful situations and make it funny. Like <laughs> no matter what you're talking about, you can make it enjoyable. So why is that? Why has that become such a thing? Humor is the only thing that is a hundred percent protection for everyone in the room. Hmm. Like if you can crack a joke about the worst situation and everybody can laugh, you get a breath from that moment. So for me, my other two, so I took this test and there, there were like all of these uh, categories that you could be, it was 21 things. My, my, one of my dear friends is a doctor of psychology and she had me take it. So it made me feel like it was credible and not just like them being like, all right, Aries today. <laughs> no offense if you're an Aries and if you're looking at your card, but so, uh, <laughs> I, at the top, my top three are kindness, justice, and humor. And when I look at those other two, like, you cannot, if you're going to balance being nice and being obsessed with justice, you better have a sense of humor because there's not a whole lot of kindness and justice. And if you're going to be a person who cares about justice, you better have a sense of humor. So I honestly think it happened really early. Because when you're trying to herd uh, three younger siblings that are just all feral and doing their own thing, (laughs) my two youngest siblings, including the one that was like a little distant star, saw that this is why, all right. I'm going to do, this has to be the camera. White people, I'm talking to you. Only you would do this. <laughs> and sisters, I don't care. This was your whitest moment. See Tarzan once decide to move to the jungle and start climbing the doorways in every room of the house and eating with you. Walking on all fours for months, eating with their hands, and then I would just walk in a room and one would be up in a doorway talking to the other one. And I'd be like, what? And I'm scared of, I'm very afraid of monkeys. My mom actually did this experiment. This is a good story. My mom. My mom is one of those people who you're like, did she need a degree? Like maybe she would have been better off just like being an associate manager at whatever the equivalent of Applebee's was in the eighties. <laughs> maybe the ground round. Why couldn't she just work? Linda, you should have stuck to the ground round. My mother decided when I was like, I was, I had to be less than 20 months because my sister didn't exist. It's probably my first memory. It was really messed up. My mom got a gorilla costume and I was waking up from, from my nap. Oh, how old was I? I might've been half. And in comes this gorilla <laughs> and I'm just sitting there and this gorilla is coming in. Ooh, ooh. What? what? And so I'm just like trying to, I'm so young. So I just start crying. I was like, oh, just in anguish. Like, why is there a gorilla? She kept it up, even with me crying. And then finally she says, my mom. I said, what the hell were you doing, mom? She said, I wanted to know if society makes us afraid or if children were naturally afraid. I said, you what? What does that mean? She just wanted to see if children were naturally scared of gorillas or society makes people scared of gorillas. Like a sociology experiment? Yes! (laughs) On her infant, like her toddler. Oh, 
Linda. Oh. Linda. <laughs> so, yeah, and then they want to be in Tarzan, and they're all about, like, look, here's a new photo of my new home. Like, it's just not. So, yeah, you have to develop a sense of humor. It's too weird otherwise. The best I have is that one time, I think my dad was going, like, he hit the garage door button and then ran back and pretend like it was going to crash. I'm like, ah, and I started that's... crying in the car. That's oh, the best that's I have. So sad. That's still sad. <laughs> but I have nothing on the ground. <laughs> I just think some things in life are hilarious, too, because, like, okay, my mom's sad that she has bipolar or whatever, but she, like, tried to baptize police officers and what? was, like, doing it. Like, life is hilarious. You can always talk to them and be like, What? I also think that this is not a, as a fat person, you have to do something. And a lot of people are like, it's unfair that not every fat person has to be funny. Let me tell you, being a fat, funny person is a lot better than not being a funny person. <laughs> like, it becomes a lot more palatable. Because then, I mean, there's nothing nicer than being able to laugh for me. And I love snacks. So if I like laughing more, at least up there with snacks, it's pretty, it's powerful. At least feels good. <laughs> it feels good. And in a, on a side note, a lot of women, when I'm semi-identified, in case you got an undergraduate degree too, I identify as non-binary, but I am semi-identified, so it's fine. I... As a girl, I uh, I am constantly, no offense to ladies, you know, I think you're the best. I just also don't always feel related because I grew up a fat. But anyway, because that's, uh, being a fat, you're not really a boy or a girl. You're just like a fat. They're like, whatever that is, hide your Halloween candy. Like, it's not, you don't get a, you don't get a gender assignment. They're just like, oh, they're like, there's a boy and there's a girl and uh-oh. Like, and so I was, uh-oh. And um, so, <laughs> so as uh-oh, one of the things that was nicest, because I'm a girl, uh-oh, uh, if people are trying to pick what I am, a lot of people think girls can't be funny. So if some jock jerk guy is like, <laughs> you can just be like, who are you? And then you you ruin the room and that guy's not so hot cha cha. Everybody's back to ground level. So it's a great way to take the piss out of really <laughs> patriarchal people. And it, it didn't do me very well in women's studies classes. It's just not a lot of humor to be had. <laughs> and it was, but yeah, and, and it's fine. There's good times to be serious. But yeah, that's uh, that's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing. It's also, I always think that humor, so religion is whatever it is. A lot of, some people are pious, some things mean things to people. Humor is perfect religion because it takes everyone and makes them the same. You can tell people the hardest thing in the world in a joke and people will laugh mm -hmm. because there's some part of their truth that's coming out, done. And that's why too, like, you know, humor, humor does different things for different people like and it must be presented to people differently for different situations i just think it's i think it's a religion uh to laugh <laughs> my 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 best friend hillary always said uh when things are terrible, imagine a laugh track is about to pop up right after. And so for, off for a joke. Yeah. <laughs> we just said life with a laugh track. It really makes the bitter a lot sweeter. So <laughs> it becomes wine. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough.
So yeah. Mm. Um, so let's let's jump to the the now a bit more. Oh yeah. Um, the now. <laughs> <laughs> by that I mean. Um, Sometimes it's good in this podcast to just kind of look at what are the things that you notice in the world when you look around? Because mm. I've come to see the world. There isn't like a world. There's just the individual people that you're surrounded by. Yeah. That's your world. Everything yeah. else is just kind of a story. So what are the people in your world like? What do you notice? Oh, well, some of the people I love, uh, some of the things I love happening with the people in my world are people have very different values than their parents' generation. Some people are uh, wanting to start families or they have families. They're just adding new people. And a lot of the things that I did and didn't like, like I don't like the way the food industry was growing up. I don't like, uh, a lot of the way that we were told to understand the people that were in our lives or, you know, the, the different groups, you know, that had been, uh, expected. Uh, so like in terms of class, in terms of race, in terms of gender, a lot of that stuff is really, really dynamically shifting. And like, I, I love seeing a lot of changes too, where many of my siblings are uh actually like not eating animal products and are like planning their their lives around a a life that they think is more sustainable not only for the planet but especially for those animals <laughs> and that's uh that's so heartening to me that's mm. really that's really special so i wish that i had a more elaborate answer for the world. I, I like now, when I was younger, the world was so big, but I like now the world for me is how can I influence myself and who can I influence well? And that's, that's really going great. <laughs> uh, I think too, the way that the world is changing because of something that's really sad. I mean, the, the pandemic is giving people a lot of opportunity to have things that are remote. And I think when things are remote, much like my thoughts about homeschool, I think people have more introspection time and they are able to find space for themselves. I know that's a, that's a privileged thought because surely some people have their clicks monitored and they have uh, every task. Uh, sur there's a lot of surveillance, but I think that people are getting to develop their environment more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in a more classic work setting, you have to figure out how you're going to eat and you have to everything has to, to come with you. Instead, it's like people can be close to their values. That's really mm. amazing. So, so it's probably good we talk about the pandemic because it's just a very large reality these it's days. It's a very large reality. So, um, I've noticed because I have some friends in different parts of the world, and I keep getting texts like. What's going on? Are you okay? I'm a little concerned. <laughs> Your country seems to be in the news a lot. <laughs> so uh, how have you 
experienced this pandemic? Well, I think first to speak to the world and news, I went on sites for other countries, mainstream news sources. Mm -hmm. It's all American headline news. So even in German where I'm reading and I'm just translating it, it reads like what I'm seeing on Associated Press, which is very interesting. I think that uh, the spotlight is on certain inal inalienable questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we we have all of the, the Constitution and, and its intentions. And we have our commitment to individuality and all of the various things that America has come to stand for. But when we see the number of people that have died and the number relative to who's died in other places, that's really important information because mm. it's just so significant. So what do you think you've... Uh... <laughs> I mean, it's one thing, whatever's said in the news, but for you personally, what have you learned and taken from this? I have learned that my life needs to be a life that's had outside of... That social doesn't need media. I don't need a medium for being social. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel good. So I was a person who overbooked myself to attempt to show support to others. I wanted to provide something that I struggled to feel myself. And in having to turn inside, I've had to, in having to live inside, I had to really be honest with the things that were not ever going to match who and how I am as a person. For example, one would be working from home. I, my, my opportunities are average. I, there, there are a lot of nice things about that, but I am not a person who enjoys working for a, a company and I want to do things that cause me to feel that kind of homeschool glee where I can focus and do as much as I want or, or not do as much as I want. And I want to spend FaceTime, like in-person FaceTime, Actual not FaceTime. on the oh. I, I need to spend Maybe we can that call that mask time. Mass, yeah, that is, that's fake time, actually. <laughs> but phony time. Um, I need to make those, those uh, spaces for people. And I... It might be an organizational challenge at first, but I've started doing things like that. Like, I am not on social media. I had a number of friends that were part of a, a social group where, that I just loved... And I've just started creating a newsletter once a month just so that we can keep seeing that social experience because the scroll effect and the getting uh, intimate news from one of your closest friends on Facebook, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So that's been a big deal because I've used social media extensively. I used to think that it was my best tool for getting to my career and personal objectives. Hmm. I'm thankful for what it provided until now, but th I feel the same way with like an occupation. You can appreciate what something allows for your life, but you also have to kind of 
take stock and say, I don't really, I don't really identify. I am lost in this. Mm. So we're probably that first generation that had the like Facebook and all these like oh, social yeah. medias, right? And now it's been what, 10 years, more than 10 years? More. I think this year it's been 15. So in 15 years, and you now said you're pretty much out of social media, right? Yeah, I'm out of it. So what, what have you taken away from this, like looking back? Because in a way, it's, it's kind of a world that you get sucked into. It's, oh, yeah. And everybody's on it, so you kind of have to be, or you're weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it was. <laughs> I'm thankful for the convenience that it provided. It gave me a lot of uh, people I shouldn't have been able to message <laughs> in various times. I mean, it's weird to say, like, I have, with many people... Uh, conversations, even like the first time I ever got drunk, I have the message that I wrote to the people that got me drunk. That's just a polite thank you. And because mm -hmm. I, <laughs> so just a, it's for archival purposes. Wow. What an amazing thing to it's have. Like a time capsule. It's a time capsule. And it's special to know what you thought, whatever number of years ago. But what I'm finding is that, that, Quality is more novel and the ability to be marketed to specific ways. I don't get to focus on people and friendship in a scroll the way that I do just sitting across from you, for example. Mm. I don't I wouldn't get that that detail about when you started feeling that disconnect and had to challenge yourself to really feel yeah, never close. <laughs> yeah, you're never that's never gonna come up there. And then when I see people on the contrary who I feel such intense closeness sharing things to Facebook and not connecting to me. An example would be someone we both know from our past, which I guess isn't useful unless the FBI is looking for him. Brian, <laughs> Brian Cloudis. Do you remember Brian Cloudis? I don't think so. Someone, so this is someone who was at Sing for Your Life. He was at the Capitol uh, insurrection because he was uh, pushed from the community for racist behavior. And now he was taking pictures with someone that uh, he was taking pictures with. I don't know if you know the guy with the painted face with the horns, the shaman. The Viking guy? Yes. The, the, uh, <laughs> the QAnon shaman. <laughs> Uh, and the, per the person that shared that is the person that I met that person with. And, but it's like the internet hears that, but I don't hear it. So I'm just ha having conversations. Like it, it can be funny, you know, when you know something and you've shared an experience, there's a whole world of like dialogue about it between the two of you. Mm -hmm. And then when you're sharing it with strangers, hoping they'll, they'll stop by and give you a like. That's so desolate. That's yeah. so desolate. And I've, I've appreciated some really considerate. I think when I posted that I was engaged, it got like over 600 responses. That's so generous that people for this moment in time wanted to, to give me that kind of a little boost, but I would have much rather gotten, I don't know if I even got a phone call. Oh, really? No, not one. But to be fair, you, 
you tend to post like after the fact. Well, so I, you... and I started doing that only because I noticed social media and the way people take in things, it doesn't let me choose my feelings about something. Hmm. Okay. So for an example, a great example is getting married. Oh, I loved marrying my husband. I loved it. And I loved that the whole goal was that my grandmother could be there and it could be near where my grandfather was buried. But also, for a lot of people, the, the emphasis on my wedding, when a wedding is not an accomplishment, like in my opinion, it's, it's just giving people notice. It's just saying, this is already what it is. I'm so thankful. Uh, I know for some people it's a big celebration. I don't have $32,000 to spend on a wedding. Like it was just, it was just a moment. And like many things like, like you couldn't be there. I had a, a, one of my best friends who had been struggling with addiction, but was a huge part of my life. I have not seen in a long time and couldn't be there. So there's like major pieces that are gone. You're just doing what you're doing as best as you can in a moment but to have people can like contact you to be like congratulations on the best moment of your life <laughs> get out <laughs> that to me is a lot like that uh that weird you met your husband in college kind of thing i don't mm. i don't want i don't want and that's i guess another reason i left social media was my weight fluctuates and it, over the last four years it's it hasn't been my focus. And when it goes back to the way that I'm like usually comfortable, I don't want people to comment on it. Mm -hmm. And on social media, I noticed I tucked the wedding photos several photos deep in. So you have to know my life and care about me to get there. And the, the teacher that had the racist assessment of me and my high school sweetheart and told us we couldn't kiss, reacted to my wedding photo. I haven't heard from this woman since, God, 2003, and I don't want to hear <laughs> from this woman. But, yeah, just, it's, it's, uh, it's nice in life that sometimes you randomly run into people and it can be awkward and that's later. It's funny. So that's good. But one thing is that being intentional as humans, we're often intentional about who we see and who sees us. Mm. I have 2,500 people on my friends list. I, I'm not going to be intentional with that. I can't be intentional with that. It's too much. It's too much. And, and two, you know, you, you date people during times in your life and then they're going back and, and you see them like commenting on things and you, you're hoping they're okay. Like, I hope that you also have your own, it's just a lot to be responsible for. Mm. Do you think there's a, you can see a better, like a way that it can blend with our lives in a more healthy, productive way? I think maybe if social media were more like email and less like people putting up posters for their band, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, an email is like, Hey, I, I wanted to tell you this thing or a text, which is why I still like the messenger app. I'm like, okay, great. You know, go ahead and send me uh, something 
silly and, or something that you noticed for your day. But right now, the nobody wants that. The minute somebody hands you a flyer for your band, what's that Mitch Hedberg joke where he's just like, oh, yes, I'll throw this away for you. Like, <laughs> my my issue was I was using it like the catcher in the rye. Like I was like going through everything on Facebook and just loving as many things as I could. Because I was like, I do love this. You're great. You're great. You're great. And eventually I just stopped and I thought, this isn't an effective way to share how I feel for people or what I want for people. So it is still social media, but I think now the things that I'm interested in are like YouTube, you, people are weird on camera, but you can still be more of yourself than you could on yeah. a little post. There's not, it's at least a, a person talking in real time and not just like a picture or something. Also a lot of the pictures, it's like a, I love photography because it can just capture fantasy. You know, you can take a fantastic world, but it's also, there's an element of like falsifying. Like there is mm -hmm. that, and that's fine. It's, it's fun. I mean, I've certainly tried to take pictures before where I've been like, <laughs> I love this on me, but that's, that's not what, uh, that's not a conversation. That's a statement. Mm -hmm. And too, you know, they, they say how people on Facebook, they, it, it inflames feelings of depression. I don't have a lot of comparison just cause I'm so strange. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't aim to be like anybody else and I don't envy anybody else because I have no clue what their series of things are. Mm. But I still think that having seen people that I know that are competitive, the way that they use it, I don't think that it, creates the quality of life that just being in your life would create. Yeah. I mean, for me, I feel something that's far, like when you look at most social media, it's about posting something. Yeah. And I feel like that aspect itself is the problem. Yeah. Whereas if you have something like, um, discord or a lot of businesses use Slack or these kind of yeah. communication channels where you can organize things, control your notifications properly and not have ads. Yeah. It's just, a platform where like if i want to it's like a forum but in real time you can actually are discord somebody. and slack monetized in that way i mean i know slack you pay for because <clears throat> might we use it i'm not sure the company i work for uses it i'm not sure how slack works because i haven't used it in seven or eight years it's so i'm sure it's completely different now but uh, it's a lot like discord yeah well discord the way they monetize it is through the like nitro boost which just gives mm. you more emojis and things like that's that all use. that's the only way they might have other ones but nothing that the user is paying for and there's no mm. feed to be given <gasps> so it's it's nice in that sense and anybody can create a server that's like private or public or whatever you want oh but yeah it, i don't know for me like and I, I assume it's pretty similar to slack like uh, i have a friend who's a ux you know Millie. yeah so she said there's Slack groups specifically for designers. So she'll go in those and join them. And that gives her access to people like a forum with wow. just people talking about a specific thing and helping each other. Or like Reddit. Exactly. I know Reddit's gotten into some questionable territory just because yeah. people with big opinions tend to. But see Reddit, I, for me, it's less like a message it's more like a board yeah and so i feel like it's too slow in that sense it's yeah. useful to be able to go back for like 
certain things like for example if i'm trying to fix my car i know i can go to a forum about this specific yes. car and yes. someone will have answered that and that's great but for um social aspect i i feel like uh, something like discord where you have a messenger it's it just removes the middleman and the problem which is really the advertising yes. and the feed well and too that 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 uh impetus to post yeah like the 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 false sense of relevance as in you know by posting that's mm -hmm. uh that's so and the sad lights and the the, the stiff, like feedback yeah from the... well and two you're right about that like reddit is upvote territory so people are trying to get the upvote but i'm okay with that for app specific applications yeah. like if you're trying to look for a solution and like it's a problem well, solution. like the best solution kind of yeah. like quora but better <laughs> Quora emailing me all the time. Mm. Hey, have you ever thought about getting your shoes replaced in Texas? These like, Quora emails, I can't do. Can't. I unsubscribe. Get out of my. And they're always like, "Oh, do you want to read more answers to sign up for?" No. <laughs> Goodbye. I also love Discord. So Discord, my niece is eleven and lives with my parents, which causes a great deal of friction because I am not in great communication with my parents, and we have had such a great time using discord like we watch we have movie nights on discord oh, that's cool. and it's just so special uh, and I, I think that the technology seems better to me we've also been able to play some some friends have played uh do you know what jackbox games are i think i tried yeah. to yes so that's been a huge i think that people are looking to move more towards those things people seem mm on the whole exhausted right now yeah but but at least in that you're basically having real-time interaction yeah. like with a real person when you can turn on your camera or not you can hear the voice stream you something can... watch it together yes have the, like we're sitting on the couch together even though we're however many miles apart yes and i actually some of the some of the beautiful gifts of last year were at one point it's really strange my high school sweetheart who was just out of a, a broadway show and was like bored my ex-boyfriend who used to be very conservative and like a couple of other random people all were in discord together just talking mm -hmm. and coming from like somebody who to me used to represent the epitome of toxic masculinity talking to my wonderful gay high school sweetheart and all of them were all talking about their different perspectives that they were coming from it was just so uh, the possibilities and, you know, he's in New York. One person was out of state, I think, in Florida. So you can unite all of these different people, mm. regardless of distance, regardless of whether or not they would probably ever see each other unless they all stumbled into the same bar. Mm -hmm. And it's this intimate conversation. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And there's also options for like modifications with these little bots that you can create and stuff like that to make it very cool but uh, i have a question for you because sure. you brought up with social media like the falseness and i yeah i found through probably a whole bunch of different uh reasons in your life your ability to um detect falseness in somebody <laughs> is quite acute <laughs> Yeah, that's so funny that you say that. No, is there a question related to that, or is that just a statement? Well, I'm. I, one thing is, uh, I'm. It's it's a beautiful thing of you, but the question is, um, with that, what are the things that you, especially since your experience with 
being larger, being thinner, like having people treat you differently because of that. Oh, yeah. What are, what are the things that you've learned from having this clarity, this ability to see this, and also being in different situations? What have you learned about people? Oh. Mm. I think one of the things I learned about people is that they don't know themselves very often and sometimes on purpose. Hmm. Like willful ignorance or what? I would say we all face so many pressures in, you know, here in the, in the West, uh, the media is overrun by things that are rare seeming to be common. Hmm. So you see people who look away that is very biologically unusual and it is presented as common so that people feel comfortable buying the thing that's being presented. So one thing that I notice is that on social media, especially, and it is heartbreaking, people present themselves in the way they think they will be loved rather than being themselves and for someone that really loves them, it can be heartbreaking. Hmm. So I guess the thing I would say from being a number of different, uh, different uh, ways is A, uh, appearance is in no way necessarily connected to your internal state. I think that the, the idea that it is is funny. I, I'll even trick like I had a doctor's appointment last year and I put on lipstick before I went there and he's like, oh, well, you look like you're doing great. I'm like, yeah, because I changed out of my pajamas. But, but it is it is something that it, it is in the medical industry. It's interpersonally. A lot of it is not intentional, but kind of like rather than willful ignorance, I think that we are so conditioned that things feel essential to us a lot of times that aren't. And unfortunately we inflict that on ourselves. Like we think it's essential that people love us when we appear a way that they think is lovable. That's mm. not true. People just, when someone really, really cares for and enjoys a person, their presentation on a platform is irrelevant. Mm. So that's been, that's actually been really meaningful to me as a married person, because as a married person, I have, you know, since I decided to throw my focus entirely when I had a, a year full of a lot of people that I loved passed away. And I was also, uh, committing to working in an administrative job after trying to start my own brand for a long time, which was really, really hard. I just, I mean, I, I became unrecognizable to myself very quickly just by not mo over monitoring myself and the person that I married just, oh, just loves me. Like I was, I was in a, my, the relationship I was in, in my engagement, everything was very, very, very appearance based. So it'd be like grabbing parts of your body and shaking it and saying, what's wrong with this? Or like, when are you going to change? Or you don't know how hard it is for me to love you. Like things like this. So to see what it's like to be with somebody that loves you versus someone that loves the idea of you, why would you spend a second 
with the person, why would you waste a second longer on the person in love with the idea of you? Mm -hmm. Just ridiculous. And even so my, even my high school sweetheart, we were talking and he was like, Oh, do you think you, do you think you had an eating disorder? Do you think you have an eating disorder? He's never thought about my body or my weight or my anything. He doesn't care. So I don't know. From having those connections and realizing those connections are not like the people I love most might not like or love my post. That doesn't change how I feel about those people. The people that are responding don't care. It's another it's another uh, gauge of public taste, but it's not a gauge of how loved someone is. Mm. That's sad. True. So, yeah. What about. Um... What, what is something that you would really love for people to understand that you feel is missed by most people you come in contact with? Mm. I want to think about that one for a little bit. <laughs> something that's missed. I would say the thing that I see missed that I would love to see people see is just the reality of others. Mm -hmm. Because I think that it so often becomes consuming to do whatever one is doing. And especially, you know, as you get older, it, you have to work up the energy or the nerve to do a lot of things. But anytime there's an exchange with another person, there's a whole other person there. And maybe my favorite thing in my life, maybe even more than humor, has been just seeing people. Because when people are seen, they just, it, uh, it warms people in a, in a different way. And, and the nicest thing, the person I married also does like, the, whoever the cashier is or whoever's at the door, like make sure to take a genuine moment with each of these people. Mm -hmm. And I wish that the world were more interested in those small exchanges and the dignity of those small exchanges would be such a different world. That's all I'm thinking now. Watch me think later. I'll be like, rewind the tape. <laughs> Eat kale. I don't know. <laughs> Collard greens are great. Mm, what about in terms of, um, we'll just kind of look a little bit more feature-wise. What do you think needs the most focus that's not really being addressed, not serious enough? The food industry. Yeah? Why is that? The food industry is so heavily lobbied against in America that it has no party representation. There is no party that says, oh, we're going to change the way that food is... Uh, produced or the way that the the land is used. I think the way that uh, animal agriculture is ravaging the planet and making very certain, very specific. Somebody said that if, if uh, all of animal agriculture were stopped, there would be 50%, the climate crisis would shrink by 50. And somebody said, oh, that's not enough. 50%'s a lot. And for every single thing that had to die, that's a whole hell of a lot. Uh, for 
for all of the reasons too, the, the like the really inconsiderate use of land that gets overexposed, the people that get sick that are so often, you know, black people, brown people, people of color and the poor. I think that it would, it would not only do a lot in terms of how people would feel, but I think that it would do a lot in terms of letting the planet breathe. I know mm. it's an unpopular thing to say because, you know, it's the notion that uh, vegan thoughts are just as militarized and just as intense as any other group that's very rigid. But I think that anything that takes a tenderness to life on all levels and can be addressed with just changes to those things, it would make a huge difference. Hmm. I have a question about the future, but involving your yeah. uh, Oma, right? Yeah, Oma. So, um, are there any lessons that you've learned from her? Like for me, my grandfather grew up in a cattle ranch and there's not many people that had that experience. So I learned a lot from him uh, that I was able to apply to my life now, which is shocked people. You literally had a grandpa cowboy. Yeah, that's what she calls it. That's what she <laughs> calls it. Cowboy grandpa. Cowboy grandpa. <laughs> But um, f <laughs> you told me so about your. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> but everything you're talking about your Oma is so uh. beautiful, and it's probably at least fifty to a hundred percent because of the way you impersonate her. <laughs> but I want to play a voicemail so you can hear this. Just what she sounds like. <laughs> but I'm curious: are there things which, because um, not everyone really has uh, strong older generations that have like that older wisdom, you know, a lot of oh, that got yeah. lost. So is there anything you've learned from her or even your grandfather or other people from that generation, which you feel are very applicable to either what we're going through now, or especially since you said she grew up in like Hitler <laughs> times. <laughs> so are there, is there anything like that that you feel would be applicable that uh, might be useful? You know, the funny thing is my grandfather, Opa, the one who is now no longer on this planet, uh, his spirit, his remains, you know, it's not a pretty topic, but like, yeah, his spirit is no longer with us. Um, but in his memory, he was a man of, of very, very little means. He did not have much at all growing up and he had a relationship with the land that was really different mm. and he told me that global warming was serious before anybody else was he just noticed it which is really kind of uh, when, you, when you say his relationship was different to the land can you like what's that? Uh, iterate on it uh he he spent time in in the world like he spent time with trees and growing things and he was a charming person but he was almost best non-verbally because he caught things that were really significant in nature hmm. that I wouldn't even know to look for and if another good example is he he was very 
close with the wildlife. So during World War II, they really had a thing against the French because he had two gooses and they would fly down and sit on his shoulder and he would feed really? them. Yeah. But the French killed his gooses and ate them. The French army. How rude. <laughs> and so he was very... <laughs> but he... I don't know. He... Uh, I loved... I would say just of Opa and Oma both, because Oma, I'll do all of her, her adages in her accent. She'll just say, family first, charity starts at home. And I summarily reject that. I always have. But <laughs> also how diligence can become art later on. She's the most generous person and... My, she, this is my mom's side of the family that Alma and Opa are on. On my dad's side of the family, they were politicians. They were people of uh, some repute and kind of like think of the Lannisters in <laughs> Game oh. of Thrones. Less incest, I hope. I don't know. I'm not in their business like that. <laughs> I don't know. We'll study my facial features if anything starts to emerge. <laughs> we'll, we'll know. Ugh, that family tree was a little too straight up and down, but no. <laughs> uh, if you're only still on social media, there's probably a quiz for it. There probably is. I know I'm not one. I know I'm a... I'm the one that drinks and knows things. Uh, not because I drink, just because Tyrion. I've had a hard life. It's fine. I don't have a facial scar. That's interesting. Anyway, <laughs> but my my dad's side of the family, my my nana, I mean, is like a. It's kind of cool. She was like the first female mayor of her town, etc. But they they lived to be seen, and. They always had, but they died so poor. I don't know how to put that. Like, not not even financially, but in terms of the relationships in their lives. Mm. Something about it was because they, they drank well and they lived opulently. And so... There wasn't really much, I think, for their kids at the end of things. My grandparents were so, like, they're hobbits. Like, if you could think of anything, just think of the most pragmatic, down-to-earth... Oh, this is Oma and Opa. Opa. As the contrast, we're just uh, always saving money, but always very, very, very consistent. The experience at their house when I was two was the same as when I was 30. Mm. It was just always the same. What are you doing? Do you want something to eat? You're going to take a nap. That was always to my mom. <laughs> her running around. What I would love to take from her is her generosity. Because while she always was very, very diligently working, if something was wrong, she's right there. What do you need? She, they paid for the rest of my college degree. My parents pulled funds once I was radical, crazy. <laughs> Atheist Andrea coming to bring Beelzebub into our home. They didn't want it. All they had to do was sign, co-sign my loans. They didn't want to. So my grandparents paid out of pocket. Oh, wow. So that kind of stuff I'll never forget. And my grandmother... 
my grandfather saw my attitude and was had some uh, hesitance, and she just said she picketed for me, and they were they had a very even relationship. I guess the thing that I take the most from my grandparents and from their era, which is a weird thing to say, my my marriage looks very much like their marriage. I was very particular about that. They... Are you going to be hobbits? Oh, we're hobbits. I mean, we already kind of are hobbits. Live live within your means. Like, work hard for the people that you love, but make the food at home. Like, it, all, of the, all the values are really helpful at this stage of the world. Because, like, mm. now I, wanna make, I don't want to make any animals... I have to make my food at home. I have to come up with new recipes. I want to feed my family the kind of things that come from my heart that feel like they come from my heart. And because I have their ethic, I'm like, I got this. Great. Bam. Been waiting on this. So, you know, I'm making like giant vegan Thanksgivings and Christmas dinners and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I would say her, her work ethic they were social, which is very impressive because English is their second language, so they had to build a social circle from nothing. Mm. But they were they were social, they were engaged in the community, and I will say the thing that I love the most about them was they were so giving. So and maybe some of it was nosiness from being in the country, but they were volunteer EMTs for twenty years after they retired. Oh. So they would just have the monitor on all the time when we were kids. And then they'd have to go with the squad and they'd go save people and put people in turning. Like they were doing these things. That's kind of cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, use your, because from the war, they just, nothing phases them. Mm. There's nothing other than my sister's uh, attempts at rapping that really phased them. <laughs> 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 Which <laughs> is not, you know what? I think it is not, I would like to clarify the reason that they tisk her rapping is not for it being a uh, to hip hop. It's because she's awful at it, and <laughs> she had a real sense of of a uh, intentional non belonging to the family for a while. So that mm-hmm. that hurt their feelings because they were like, "We tried to give you whatever you needed." But you don't like us because you want to bend and you want to shoot someone. <laughs> you know? It all it all works out. Poor Oma Opa. Poor Oma Opa. Well, actually, when my sister was, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but when my sister was in a particularly rebellious phase, I understand the rebellion, obviously, in that household. But she jumped out of her window to run away from my dad and she cracked both of her ankles and was uh, jail crawling out of the yard, my grandmother came down and took care of her when she had to be on a bed, a medical bed in the middle of the kitchen to be taken care of. But she flew down in her 80s to, to do that. So that level of really going the extra mile for your family, I hope that I will be like that. But I also hope that I will be more, more, um, I want to draw a larger net for, for what my family is. And I think not having children, I should be able to do that. You don't want kids. Oh, I'm never having kids now. (laughs) (laughs) 
I used enough. to do it because I feared overpopulation, but at this point I just, I, I, uh, I think in the, the world by the world, I specifically mean the U S to be a creative person in the U S you have to treat your creativity like a kid. Cause mm. it takes resource. It takes money. It takes thought. And yeah, that's where, that's where I want to put it. I'm so thankful for the, the kids that will be in this world. And I, I live to be an auntie. It's the best. Oh, people are always like, can't you wait till you're a wife? I'm like, what about auntie? <laughs> like, <laughs> I want someone to drool all over me and then vomit milk. Like, I just, <laughs> oh, I love being an auntie. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. You'd like India then because everybody's auntie. I love that. <laughs> I think uncle. that's the best. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do out here. And that's how it was. Spread the tradition. Yeah. Well, my, my Oma and Opa were like that. So their mm. friends were, you know, Tanta and uncle. So mm. I won't have any Tantas, but. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, in terms of the next generation, Yeah. what are your, what do you hope that we can accomplish for them? Because, you know, I feel like every generation, there's at least two main goals. Leave the planet at least as good as you got it, yeah. if not a little better. And let the generation have, like, at least one notch better off than you had it. Yeah. We probably failed with the first one. I don't think it's possible, even if we do everything, to get back to where it was when we were born. Yeah. We can at least set the foundation, right? So, but at least in terms of the next generation, uh, is there any, I don't know, advice or things you feel like we could do as a community or like, what's your thoughts on this? Oh, the, the challenge is how steep it is. Let's just look at it. Like, never mind what's possible. What's needed. What's needed. The, the first thing, and this is just speaking as an American, I need to see the end of mass incarceration. Like I can't live in a society where it doesn't matter what was manufactured in what way or ethical or blah. Like, you know, people say, oh, if things are made in the USA, it's, it's, uh, you know, that it wasn't made in a sweatshop. I don't know that because we have the largest amount of humans incarcerated. And as a person who's been incarcerated, I, there's not a person I would wish that on. Even when people are laughing at, at their political adversaries being carried off to jail, I I cringe inside myself thinking of what that means and what that feels like. So, yeah, I, I would love to see that dramatically change. And then the other thing that I think would be really helpful is if we could model some of our policies after how some of the Scandinavian countries view a just a, a basic livable wage and allow people to, uh, make, maybe this is, maybe this is the second one is the taking away the barrier to entry for education hmm. because it's to, it's not only is it outrageous, more people want to be in an education system than ever, but it's untenable for a lot of people and it's debilitating once they've gotten through it. And then we don't give people any flexibility to make changes. You have to do something until it burns you out. I was telling someone earlier today that the only time I've not been at work in the last, how old am I? 17 years would be to go to the hospital. 
mm. or to jail. That <laughs> <laughs> is not acceptable. Those aren't vacations. They were not vacations. And then I did have a a spell of unemployment where I was working odd jobs, but I was still, again, I was still working odd jobs, contract jobs. That's not, I was uh, watching and basically there's, there was a woman and she was in marketing and it was very difficult. And so they paid a stipend while she figured out what she wanted to do. And now she's going back to school and she gets a student stipend in addition to the school being paid. That's in, mm. that's in, Finland. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, and then I would also really like to see a radical shift in the way that we, I guess healthcare is obviously something that people are looking to change, but specifically disability. I see that like, like what your mom had to go through, no one should have to go through that. She should never have had to, I mean, because the barriers that the country, because she still worked, was she still working a lot of the time? She wasn't really able, because she was a phlebotomist before that. So when her, her hand is like numb, even though it's pain. So she, it's very difficult to find a vein when you have yeah. a numb hand. She was still working a little bit. And I, I think she's working in a retirement home because it was a little bit easier. I mean, until someone tried to bite her. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was like, okay, I think I need to stop this. She's like, I'm already in pain. You don't need to bite me. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> No, but uh, I think a lot of times she just couldn't. The real problem for her was not so much um, that as the, the way the workers comp. Because she, mm. she fell in a hospital because there's an ice machine spitting out ice. It was broken. And they thought it was fixed, so they took away the wet floor sign. And she slipped and hit her head on like the door frame. <gasps> so that's what caused it. And so the workers comp was drug out for such a long time. And it's an excruciating process. Like it's horrible. A decade plus to <gasps> get anything. And you're just... They, they literally design it to wear you out until you give up and just accept yep. whatever pittance. Disability also, because the mm. one of my dearest friends has, uh, two of my dearest friends have cerebral palsy, but one of them has it and uh, they can't, it's full-time job to live. So, but in order to get that like assistance and to get that sort of uh, intervention, years and what is what is this what is this person to do just just beg other people and at this point their mom had died and they they ended up forced to live with family that were not as appreciative of this person and it was just heartbreaking heartbreaking so yeah i would love to see because too with the workers comp given what your mom was going through she shouldn't have had disability should have been like oh my god please here is something for you to live yeah. and when people don't have resources they can't make decisions i feel like one of the problems that comes up that really would just if we can just solve this one thing and that's that no one should be in survival mode mm-mm if we can just get people out of that, you can think clearly, you can get yourself into better situations. Yes. But when you're in survival mode, what can you do? Like you're just trying to find food. Yes. You're going to make poor choices. Yes. The the thing I think of internationally, the charity that I is most dear to my heart is charities that provide like uh, drinking water, because mm -hmm. that's one of those things where it's like the fact that like one in six people doesn't have access to clean drink. 
it's it's mind blowing when you think of things on a global scale that if we could make that change, mm-hmm. we could start because we need everyone like we need every person on this world. I know that disease and death and fam like the, things like that happen, but to survive this planet needs its occupants and to just toss some people by the wayside because they were born in a location that doesn't have those resources is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. So I think, like you said, survival mode, not even having just enough. One of the things that I saw recently that disturbed me was that some of the nationalist conversation is that that uh, progressives and liberals are trying to turn uh, the planet into one world governance and that 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 takes away their identity as an American and all of these various things. My thought is that we are at a, a place in time where technology has advanced to a point and resource production has advanced to a point that the thing that you're that you mentioned where people all have enough to survive, that is a thousand percent possible. Not 100, 1000 percent possible. And for that not to be something that we prioritize just as like human beings, because we want to preserve our identity and, and too bad, (laughs) like, Mm. uh, enjoy your, your cholera. That's just (laughs) completely unacceptable. I don't think that's about I don't think that's about having a, a a world order. I think that's just having like a human decency. Yeah. I mean, I don't want a world order. I want enough sensible people that we don't really need that much governing. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? But we could all be homeschooled. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> What was it? Jesus sword. Jesus. Jesus. The sword of the Bible. Just beating me with the sword of the Bible. What is this? And this kid got beat because I told his mom. I said, he just beat me with his sword. And she said, did he just beat you with the word of the Lord? And he got, that is not what this was. You know, it's they like, were Baptist. It's weird that I know that. <laughs> but what's so funny is... I loved swords as a kid, like a lot, like you a did? lot, a lot. And they all got taken away inevitably every single time I got one. <laughs> Probably for hitting people. <laughs> Do you have a lightsaber though? I did at one point. I mean, I'm jealous. How can you not? It's a lightsaber. Oh, uh, it was so important to me as a kid. I can't, <laughs> I can't overstate how <laughs> the importance of Star Wars. But I was very disappointed because they were the kind we go and it slides out. Don't like it. It's cool and all, but no, like it's not a lightsaber. What is you the... need to have the fuzzy glow experience. I still think, you know, I have some friends who have some very expensive lightsabers and I'm going to say they still don't get it for me. But I mean, like even that, because most of them, it's just like a long glass tube. Yeah. That's the thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. I want the thing. Do okay. the thing. I want to be able to attach it here and then walk. That's going to happen before we die. I don't know if any of the good stuff will. But <laughs> at least be a Death Star. Lucasfilm will. It's Disney's in control. They'll find a way a lightsaber, okay? Oh, God. Uh, that's depressing. Um, yeah. I would like to ask, if you're comfortable sharing, yeah. uh, your uh, your tattoo. Oh, yeah. Would you like it's to share? just for suicide stuff. Um, 
as I mentioned, I was depressed many times and these are covering the burn marks on my hands from my most recent suicide attempt, which is now 10 years ago this year, which is really nice uh, because I'm medicated and I don't even want to do the things I used to do, which is if people say that mental health can't be treated, they are wrong. Uh, so I... In case you're listening, what is it? This? Oh, what is it? So, uh, this is a semicolon. So, it is for where your sentence could have taken a, a full stop. You could have put a period, but you chose to go on. Hmm. Okay. Which is nice. I mean, not like I chose. I mean, I'm <laughs> but But you go on. And I think that's important because you uh, hit a lot of moments in your life where you're like, this is it. Full mm. stop. I cannot. <laughs> but it's actually this. Mm. So that's special. It's good to help. A lot of people just think that I'm like a literary snob, which I'm fine with too. I'm like, you don't need to know my business. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm very fine with that though. I'm really not shy about things like suicide and all of that. It's, it's, uh, everything is something that, uh, you put on and take off a lot of things in your life. Mm. And something, something like suicide obviously has very grave repercussions, but when you're going into that that place there's not really as much agency as people think there is because you you're just really so so badly um depressed or what often happens people don't know this you're so depressed and then you come out of it and you finally have the energy to do what you've been uh obsessing over mm. that yeah so but it's uh i don't think it's uncommon i was listening the other day to some guy had won the lottery and a few years later he he committed suicide i think that sometimes when you go through a lot of extreme changes especially in terms of the way society views you it's something that it's a vulnerability so mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh there's a lot of life to live and sometimes living is very difficult mm -hmm. So, is it because I mean it was anyway a problem before, and because of the pandemic, it's become a very extreme problem of suicide. Oh yes, and uh, particularly in the last few decades, um, the rise in uh, small children committing suicide has yeah. just been astronomical. So, as someone who suffered through this kind of depression and these kind of things, what do you feel would be helpful? What needs to be done? How can we make this? better for children <sighs> and adults of course but my husband is a childhood survivor of suicide so it is crazy how young that it can start i think that the first thing would be that we have a very 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 overdeveloped medical industrial complex with very very little in the way of mental health mm. so for him he got a therapist for me, I already had a therapist, but I needed medication. Those sorts of things uh, are just anathema when you live in a world where you won't even encounter that. Mm -hmm. you, won't, you won't see that as a possibility. You don't see people getting better. The conversation around mental health is often veiled still because the, the stigma exists in that people are becoming more accepting of it being a health issue, but a lot of people see choice in it. And it's interesting when you see choice in something that children are, are going through. I know specifically the highest 
rise has been in uh, young girls that are black before the age of 12. I would say... What do you think can be in their, like, in their experience to push them to that point? Oh. I think there are so many things, but a feeling that truly your life will never be better. Hmm. Coming to a sense, I mean, that is something on all of us as society to cure because we've treated um, black women, female identified black people just with complete inconsideration throughout history. And I mean, even even today, the level of respect. So I would say what needs to happen, I'm... Um, Rather than what needs to happen, the things that happen are you don't feel committed to life. You feel committed to death for your own peace. For so that, it's just looking for the escape from this whatever situation? Or the, and more, so it can be a situation. And two, multiple things can cause suicidality, which is interesting. There's Emile Durkheim did a study on suicide. And one of the things that, that was studied was why people committed suicide. The theory was that people will become suicidal if they aren't religious at the time. So they took oh. this. They, they thought that if people like the don't fear have of God. In hell will... Oh, no. They thought that if people have God, they are not suicidal. And if they don't, they'll kill themselves. So that was the theory when they were taking tests. What they found was that whether you were very religious or very not religious, both extremes could result in suicidality. The same thing in terms of like, if you were overly conventional, you committed to, you were by the book, you were holding yourself to this ridiculous standard, or you were way out there and totally in your own world, both ended up being indications. So I think for people who are living uh, at the edges of identities that are disenfranchised, hmm. you just, where to, do you belong? What to do? What to do. And, and honestly, as a, as a person during my, my dances with death, my dream was stability. I had no stability. I thought death takes everyone and it is, uh, completely, um, not, what it, what is the right word? Death takes all. So it doesn't matter who you are. It sees no class. It sees no, for me, it didn't care about my appearance. It was just all consuming. And that piece was so attractive to me. Like and that it was unbiased. Yeah. The lack <laughs> of bias was very attractive. And so for me, when I see like people living in situations where they are made to feel so hopeless and given so few resources, the craving for death isn't strange to me at all. Mm -hmm. What's sad to me is that a lot of times I think people crave an easy solution like boop them in the nose three times and then just turn them around and they'll want to live forever. That is not... <laughs> I if only that worked. If only that worked. 
it is so hard on communities to put that pressure on a community. We need better resources as a society. Mm. So, yeah, that's what I think. And for people who are living on the fringes, which we've been witnessing fringes that uh, like the the outrage that's been happening politically in terms of the the capital being uh, what is what is word uh, the siege. The people that are doing this are not good. Like, they're not in a good place. I don't like what they stand for. I don't like what they think. But they think it to an extent that they're unwell. So I think a lot of those people, I mean, that that uh, head of police, was it a head of police or a, an officer that killed themselves after the Capitol was rampant? Because honestly, people get to a point where what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. And I don't think it would be coming from a generous heart for me to say, I want to see these these children whose only crime was being born into a society that doesn't regard them with enough love. I wouldn't be coming from a good heart if I didn't say people who have developed these series of like mind-blowingly inconsistent, outrageous expectations for society, they're still feeling feelings that are complete alienation. I don't want to see them reified or any of their views, but they do need help. Yeah. One of the greatest uh, pieces of advice when it comes to stuff like that that I've heard is uh, you don't condemn the person, you condemn the action. Yeah. You never condemn the person because... It's person. My mother always said, hate the sin, love the sinner. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, but like. And it becomes difficult. I mean, it sure is hard. It's not easy. Especially when you're like, oh, little girls of color are dying because they don't fit in this world. And you're out here waving your Confederate flag at the Capitol. It's hard to see the pains, that there are pains that are being felt that could be shared by one so you know so blameless and then one person where you're like you've lived your life why are you here <laughs> yeah. but again like you said i and me as a person who i have gone through lots of different um understandings in my life i i hope that i won't be judged by the public for my least uh wonderful moments and and views that i've had to work through I certainly wouldn't want to judge someone who is in the process of becoming, because like I said, that uh, the ex of mine who was uh, misogynistic, had some toxic masculine things and was very conservative. Now this person is completely on a different side and wants to see the world, uh, people given a chance and and a world Mm -hmm. that's more generous to all the citizens. So things can change. Yeah. Did you ever hear the I think you'll like this. Have you ever heard the Oscar Wilde quote? I say it way too much, but I really, really love it. That's where he says, um, ever, now I'm going to say it incorrectly because I think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Hmm. So it's like, fair enough. That's beautiful. And that is true. You can't pause the story and, <sighs> yeah well and i found too for myself 
the more I understand about myself, the more I recognize in people. Like, for example, let's say you have somebody that you, you're feeling a lot of um, anger or frustration or you, they're like your enemy, right? Yeah. The more you understand your enemy, the, lower you're, the less you're capable of them being an enemy for you. Yeah. They may still have whatever, that's their thing. But for you, like, if you genuinely, truly understand them, then the only thing left is really having compassion. That doesn't mean you have to be nice. It just means you have to love them because yeah. you understand them. Yes. But it takes a lot of love to have tough love for somebody else. Yes. Oh, yes, it does. I'm just <laughs> thinking in my sibling world now. <laughs> but that, I think that's the nice thing about being related to people who are sometimes confounding is that you have this love for them even when you're like, oh, what? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, what did you just say? Like, just... Uh, <laughs> my... My sister, the one that's closest in age to me, like I was all feelings and sensitive and spend time with other others. And she she became like a hyper materialist who was really inflammatory with others. Uh, and somehow we're close now again to the but she came she came back around. But it was always my challenge, like when she was behaving in a way that was just most just the opposite of my own core values to find that love for her. So it's, mm. I think that's a special thing to be able to find that because or else you, that that's always someone outside of your understanding and it becomes scary. Mm. Well, um, I like to end these on a lighter note. So great. What <laughs> is in the works? What is Andy's life going forward? What do you want to do? What do you want your life to be? Oh, there's so many things. Can I ask you what your favorite animal is first? It's important to me right now. Uh-huh. Uh, if you question. could hang out with any animal right now, pick your animal. A hangout animal. This is very funny to me because it wouldn't have been my choice at any point in my life. But um, <laughs> I grew up in a, a like a farm like, not grew up, but like I spent my summers at my grandfather's farm. Mm -hmm. So I've had the experience of like feeding a baby calf and stuff, which is very <sighs> beautiful. But I would have never said a cow. Like those cows <laughs> were very skittish and probably because of the way my grandfather was. And they're just not like warm. They're just eating there? and trying to do what they need to do and avoid you at the same time. <laughs> but when I went to India, the ashram we were in, those cows, the baby ones were like dogs. Um, the way they were, they were bouncing and playing and they come up to you and they want you to feed them. And they're like licking and all this, like they're friendly. They're amazing. Aww. And they have so much life in them. Aww. And I, I don't know if I can pick one animal, but that was definitely something that was a beautiful experience. So, so specifically ashram calf. Yeah. Cause it's, it's not just that it's, these are, they're country cows, which are mm. actually distinctly different than the more like Western cows you see. They have the big, like hump in the back are these the big... ones they turn into leather uh i don't know are they a dark that. color they're all different colors oh, okay but um because i learned about that because uh yeah but i'm glad these cows are living a free life aren't they <laughs> are they well um oh, no. they're 
cows in India is very interesting to me because you think, oh, sacred cow. But we went on a trip to Rishikesh, which is in North India. And this is supposed to be like one of the yoga capitals of the world. But there's like so many cows that are like, they're like vagrants. They're like homeless people. They're, they just walk the streets. And every time I would walk by, I would just kind of pet one. And you could see it was like starving for love. It would just be like, oh. Like, they just wanted you to love, love it. love to be loved? Yeah, because everyone's like, shoes them away, you know? Like, get Why? out of here, stop eating my... Wood. Because they're just, they're literally I like... I want to get a house there only to be nice to the cows. Is that <laughs> weird? I want to get a barn there. <laughs> a barn? <laughs> I do. I want to get a barn there. Well, there's some people, like Shroff knew this guy, who's, um, he, he had a little farm that he made, and he had a name for each and every one of the cows, and the way he treated them was like, <gasps> they're like heaven i don't know it was, it was just because it's a family member it's a pet exactly <gasps> it was very beautiful i hope animals get that level of dignity one day I know that's just <laughs> but it's not everywhere like no unfortunately even in india there's a lot of times when uh the cows cease to be useful for milk or whatever and they're just kind of like off you go in the street and so they're no! just everywhere they and they're ballsy they just lay in the road they're like what <laughs> I'm not moving. It's all the cars are like, You okay. did this to me, Stan. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But anyway, that ashram cow, as well as probably the um, the peacocks are pretty cool. I love like, that. Running around everywhere. <gasps> they just run around in India everywhere? Well, in the ashram particularly, they're, they're just, they're there. Oh, so we, we actually they make loud noises. They do. And we had a friend in our teacher training whose name was Kior. And uh, people gave him a hard time because like, they, his name it sounds a little bit like how the peacock's call is. <laughs> so we'd like have the buses going by and people be like, Kior, Kior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's such a crazy little kid. I love him so oh, much. That's so good. But, oh, peacocks are fabulous. They're in my top 10 for sure. <laughs> oh, I hung out with some this year. Yeah. Um, in Florida, they uh, have outdoor areas where you can like drive and see animals, but the animals just get to live their lives. Like it's not like feed this animal. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's one place that's like that that's in Georgia, but you feed the animals like pellets, and they come up and they're like, give me a pellet. Their tongue, they stick their tongue, and they know you're just gonna shoot it in. So they're like, oh, like, and you can smell on their breath. It's like. That you've eaten something like that before? No one smells like the animals. Or you're like, oh, oh that's bison. I'm ashamed. <laughs> Ted Turner, how dare you <laughs> get me to eat bison before? Oh. You can smell that you've eaten it. Like, I've smelled it on my food, like in a faint. So, uh. And I've eaten some things. That the, my high crimes could be. That's a movie I want to make one day. Uh, but uh, right now, is, uh, I would love to. I just want to be with the manatees. I want to be with a manatee. I want to see them. I've only seen them in like the books on ecology in school. <gasps> and you'd learn about that. But I've never seen the actual manatees. They look like me, but they're in the water. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They might have a more of a facial hair situation, but they just kind of look like a gray turd. And they're just floating, trying to live their lives. Right now, I'm really into fat vegetarian animals. <laughs> they are my favorite. I used to be offended when our mutual friend Christopher would call me a rhino. And now I'm like, that's pretty dope. I'm a rhino. Rhinos are... Have you seen what that ass looks like? And those eat grass all day. That's like a tank that runs on corn oil. That is amazing. I want that. Where? So I, I, I love big vegetarians right now. 
I think they're, I think they're golden. I think they're gorgeous. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of what you asked before, what I'm doing, um, I'm going to take some time to undo for a while. Okay. I am undoing. Uh, my big goals are still, I still want to direct and produce. That gives me such joy. And I want to, I think it's almost uh, passe to say that you want to direct and produce things that get people to think like the movie parasite is a good example of something that gets people to think but i don't know why you would go into something that's difficult to get into if you didn't want to get people to think <laughs> mm. so i think it'll probably start with me uh because i i'm me and for the first time in my life i think in life people think you go round and round and do the same thing i think it's like a screw so you're like going up so you meet the same moment but from a different vantage point so I'm in such a great point right now in my life where I'll get to make some some new decisions and I want to figure out where I can provide through my experience the best value for others. Mm -hmm. Because some things are hard. Like I know uh, the semicolon tattoo subject is not a lighter note, but it's that kind of stuff people really need to talk about. But I'm not a... I'm not a professional. I'm only somebody who's experienced that. So trying to figure out what I can give that is the most needed to people. Mm. In short, entertaining bursts. And uh, But the undoing process is just that I've, I've caught up. I'm, I'm not in a place where it's a, a moment that I've seen you in before where it's like you're like, I'm to the point where financially I can make a new decision. And I can do something that's daring for myself. And I think those are the best. You know, you said earlier the moment of growth. I think those moments really allow you. I hope that my best moment of growth it doesn't end with me dumping my poor fiance. <laughs> I think there's there's a lot of growth ahead. I just, I'm, I don't want to nudge myself into anxiety by thinking about it too much. Hmm. Are there any, um, like what would be something which is perhaps easy to others, but for you, it's a big challenge that you'd like to accomplish. Easy for others, but a challenge. It doesn't have to be easy for others or not, but like, mm. what's the big challenge for you going forward? The big challenge for me is to live. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the things that other people take for granted, like. I'm going to get up. I'm going to put on clothes. I'm going to start my day or I'm going to unwind. I don't know what those things feel like unwinding. for me. Huh? Unwinding. I don't know how to do those things. <laughs> my, I'm married to someone who is just so good at like, now I have time. I'm going to do the thing. I mean, sometimes he complains and he's like, oh, I'm boring myself today. I'm like, oh, well, I can help you with that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I... I don't, after I lost a lot of things four years ago, I may, and maybe much, maybe long before that, I really haven't paid attention to what I like. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I like. If I were eight years old, I could tell you 
give me five minutes. I can tell you more about what I like than you would ever want to hear. You'd be like, oh God, okay, white tigers. <laughs> you want to be a gymnast. <laughs> Very unlikely. Gravity doesn't look like it's kind to you. Uh, which isn't fat phobic. It was just the truth. I was fabulous. I was holding up earth really well. <laughs> All of my girth. But um, I, I, I really kind of want to know, um, yeah, what I... I want to know who I am at this, where I meet myself right now. And I, I look forward to that. And I want to know that beyond the things I know I like about myself. Like I like the things I can create. I like my relationships with my friends. I love my family. Uh, but I want to know me on a, on a separate level where I can just, what is, what is the way to say it? I want to be able to meet my current moment with, with, uh, acceptance. Hmm. And that's hard. I think that's a mental health. Thing. I think that's something that both of you have learned and, and focused on and is, a is a practice that's very challenging, especially as a person who used to have religion. Some of the other things like meditation, yoga, all of these things, there's a, a tinge of, uh, not only doubt, but like, uh, I don't feel safe. Like, I think that it's part of the, really. Mm -hmm, I, I not only have the, the skeptic to protect my once vulnerable, faithful heart, but I also have the, uh, the fear of falling into another situation where I'm once again, removed from the rest of the world and I am not able to be in touch with where people are and what they need. And mm. so that gives me like tremendous apprehension. So I, I want to, I want to work through that because I think there's a balance that I haven't struck there because I think through those moments of just being like, I love, I love a lot of the, the Taoist, uh, learnings were really special to me after I was coming out of religion and being able to sit with a, well, what the way that I would put it is, and it, it aligns with humor, being able to accept all that is with a, with a sweetness is mm. very important to me. And I'm not there yet. Well, <laughs> that's definitely a important part of yoga is like, Shav was just saying this uh, the other day when she when she first went to the ashram, there was she was volunteering for some program because that's how it works. Everything's volunteer based, mm. so she's in some program and they have um, a plant that's very common in India called neem. Uh, anybody who's focused on like medicinal plants and stuff would probably have heard of it. It's one of the most medicinal plants on the planet. It's a mm. tree, and the leaves are. Um, good for so many things but they're also very bitter they're very un they're just, they don't <laughs> taste good they just don't and uh one thing they do but um it, it helps with the digestive tract in so many different aspects so mm. when you're on a this like yogic spiritual thing what they do in the ashram is they provide uh, little balls of neem they've ground up the leaves and made oh. into a little ball and you take that in the morning before you do your practices it helps with a whole bunch you of just things you swallow it or do you have to chew it it's, i mean Get it down. It's better to, to chew, chew 
because it starts the adjustment process and breaks it up and stuff. But I mean, it's still going to benefit you even if you just drop it in the back of your throat. <laughs> like my mom tried it and she literally threw it. <laughs> so she chops in little bits and takes it. But anyway, um, oh, your mom's so great. Because it's like that, uh, Shrava Singh, she saw this other woman who was uh, very beautiful and just taking it and smiling. And she's like, how are you smiling? And she's like, <laughs> she's like, isn't it gross? She's like, yeah, I hate it, but I can either smile or not. Like, yes. it was that simple. Yes. <laughs> and this, this uh, concept is really everything because um, the way we kind of look at it, it, like what they're trying to get you to understand in the ashram is your life is just... A series of things that are happening but there's no one else inside of you except for you so i know it's very like a lot of people don't like hearing like just be happy it's not about just be happy it's like it's your choice it really is and maybe it's difficult to get through that right now for so many reasons but when it comes down to it if you're the only person inside of you then you can choose to be happy about and deal with whatever you're doing in joyfully well and i think there's something to be said for for acceptance, because I know I think that America has a toxic relationship with positivity where they're like, be smile through. Come on. Where's your smile? I think that there is a beauty, though, in accepting all of what something is, you know, mm -hmm. like. And to and to take that with a with a joy, that's that's really something special, you know? Yeah. Like you can even have something sorrowful or painful happen. It can happen. Yeah. You can still go through it graciously. Oh, I know that for the the losses that I had, so losing that best friend that I mentioned, that's our mutual friend, Christopher, just to no longer being friends, and then the loss of my grandfather. Oh, I never, ever in my life understood better that I hated when people would be like, don't cry because it's gone. Smile because it happened. <laughs> it's like, ew. But I... I'm so happy. Like, I am so happy that I got to spend... When you feel the the immenseness of something that is, is and was loved leaving, you have to think about what it, what it was for you when it was present. And why focus on absence when you can think about the joy of, of what was there. I mean, mourning is important. I don't think that I'm necessarily excellent at it, but it is, it's nice that in the aftermath of it, you can say, oh my gosh, like how, how worth it to mourn something I loved so much, how worth it to have been close to someone so incredibly special. So I want to feel that way about me. So <laughs> not in a, an egotistical manner, but also, you know why that lady smiled just to say she already took her name. She was smiling because it was, oh, yes, <laughs> please. Okay. Everybody's like, how are you? She didn't smile before. She was walking up like, yes. She said, yes, it's done. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> um before we wrap it up is there anything you would like to um plug or uh yeah you should watch this podcast you should listen to it no. you should love it <laughs> but i didn't you don't you work with a nonprofit? oh yeah uh 
If you would, I work with uh, the Performing Arts Conservatory of Atlanta, which provides vocal scholarships to underserved kids who are talented but don't have the means to be working with formal teachers. And the students do so well. It's such a joy of my life. So PACA, it's called, or just look up, just Google, Google this. Google Performing Arts Conservatory of Atlanta. So... Okay, well, we'll link to it in the description. Oh, that's nice. Should update the website. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'll I'll do something someday, but I'll just I'll just pop into the podcast when I do. Just be like, hey guys, we did a thing. Uh, are there any thoughts you'd like to leave on? Oh, I just uh, hope that whoever's listening is uh is smiling for <laughs> and uh is in a is in a place where life is being uh kind and if you're not i hope you're lucky enough that next roll of the die you, you get it so that's all i don't really not to be brain dead but in a time not that there's anything wrong with being brain dead uh, <laughs> but in a in a time such as this it's just such an honor to be listened to mm. so Fantastic. Andy, High five! <laughs> Jump, freeze frame. <laughs> well, Andy, uh, I love you to death. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, is, that means a lot. I love know. you, love you, Shroff. It's behind the camera. I feel so guilty. <laughs> You're not saying anything. It's fine. She'll well, have one. Does she have a podcast yet? I'm probably going to figure out how to do that with someone else because I I just know her. So know it's her. like, yeah, <laughs> it'd be a lot better for someone else to interview her, I feel. Because or else it'll just be the two of you. That makes sense. Yeah. But uh, what I'd like to do is we'll get a situation soon where there's another microphone that you can have. So it's a <gasps> oh, group yeah. conversation. It's just that right now it's kind of difficult with the setup, but we'll fix this. Oh, it's already it's already wonderful. He's always <laughs> ready to we'll fix it. <laughs> okay well anyways uh that's all everybody um have a wonderful day and i'll link all that in the description below this is andy she's lovely and we're out peace Bye.